Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the Eldorado Performing Arts Center. A couple of things that are coming up I want you to know about. First of all, we have something called a New to Vox Dinner, and you can sign up uh, on our website uh, for a New to a Vox Dinner. We, we love food and conversation, and that's what that is. Second thing is, uh, we still have a couple of spots open for table fellowships. Table fellowships, we, we had our first run uh, this last week. We had about 60 folks uh, in uh, four different homes. We want to expand that into the spring, but we've still got a few spots. If you're interested in connecting uh, with some folks in our community, this is kind of the next step to do that. You can find out more about those at, uh, at uh, the Nuda Box dinner as well. Uh, good morning, Greg. Adam, good morning. Great to see you. This is awesome. I can see you. I can see how bored you are already. Uh, I can see that they're sleeping already in the second row. Uh, and, uh, and I bless it. Man, I bless it all. So anyway, uh, we've, got some, we've got some really great questions today. We've got, uh, so I'm going to do some questions. Izzy's going to come up and uh, we're going to do some worship together. Uh, Ronnie's going to share again today, and then we'll celebrate the Eucharist together, all right? So that's what we got on the docket today. Question number one, fire it up, Gary. Here we go. I've always been confused by the scripture that says, paraphrase, where two or more are gathered, there I will be. That's a pretty good paraphrase, first of all, of Matthew 18. It sounds like it's saying that I will not have God's presence unless I pray with someone. But that contradicts the idea that God is with me all the time. Can you explain this to me? Well, question one, yes, I can explain this to you. If you read that verse in context, and it's pulled out of context, I mean, doggone it, we're so lame when we do stuff like this, and no wonder it's confusing for people. In context, that verse is dealing with, okay, what happens when a disciple sins against another disciple? And and Jesus says, go to that person, uh, you know, privately, uh, share with them the offense. They repent. Awesome. If not, take another person there or two people there. So one or two people are key. Um, and then if not, if, if, that, if they've still, you know, if they're still kind of unrepentant, um, then you bring it to the church. Now, the church in those days was, you know, 20 people in a, in a house. Uh, so far different from kind of the big churches in our area and that we're familiar with. But then he talks about binding and loosing, which were Jewish words of, of determining case law. And then he says, where two of you agree on something, I will be with you. And so the context is in church discipline. The context is not in normal daily life. So, of course, he is with us um, through his spirit. Absolutely, you're right to be perplexed by that. But if you go and read Matthew 18, in context, you'll see that it's talking about uh, church discipline and and the stunning idea that church people aren't always perfect. It's shocking, I know. All right, question number two. After the tragedy, oh, go back one. There we go. After the tragedy in Las Vegas, it seems like saying our prayers and thoughts are with you is just sadly not enough. It breaks my heart to feel prayer as a hollow gesture right now. Still, politicians, Christian leaders, and others stand up and say, we pray for them, but no, all caps, action is taken by these leaders. Next, is it possible to believe Jesus would preach and own a gun, America? 
How do such Christians reconcile their stalwart commitment to the Second Amendment with their belief in a gospel that preaches nonviolence? Thanks for always keeping it real. All right, holy cow, that is a massive question to be answered in like one minute. So go back to the first uh, part of that question, if you would, Gary. Let's talk briefly about thoughts and prayers. Um, I agree and disagree with the statement that thoughts and prayers are not enough. In, in one sense, I, I'm a firm and utter believer that prayer is something that we do, that it works, that it's effective, uh, that, God, that, that there are things that God doesn't do um, because we have not prayed and that there are things that God does do because we have prayed. So, so I would I would quibble with anybody that says that thoughts and prayers are uh, just empty gestures. Now, for a lot of folks, I see why it feels that way, right? The people that have the power to do something about this, when they just offer kind of the token thoughts and prayers after each of these tragedies, yes, it feels rote. Yes, it feels pedantic. Yes, it absolutely feels token and trite. I totally get that. But for kingdom people... Um, I don't say thoughts and prayers because because people react so negatively to it. I do pray, absolutely. I do think prayer is a thing. Um, I don't know. Uh, so for me, I say something like, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Um, you know, it's that yearning for the world to be put to rights again. Uh, but I don't, I, I'm with you on, yet. Yeah, it's, it's sounding increasingly hollow, no question. Now, next slide, how do we reconcile uh, belief in a Second Amendment with their belief in a gospel that preaches nonviolence. Now, Christians disagree over whether or not the gospel preaches nonviolence. That will shock you. Um, and they disagree over the role of the state in that. And they disagree over the role of uh, self-protection in that. So there, there are good Jesus-loving Christians, absolutely, that, that feel like owning a gun, having a gun is not incompatible at all with following Jesus. And that there could be instances where um, to prevent greater evils, um, an evil like uh, shooting somebody uh, must be done. And not all Christians agree with that. But I'm just saying some Christians would, would, would disagree that the gospel preaches only nonviolence. Um, I, I'm... I'm kind of in the middle on this. I, uh, the, more I, the more I immerse myself in the words of Jesus, um, the more I'm, I'm, I'm very much for sensible gun control. Absolutely. I don't think sensible gun control is incompatible with the Second Amendment. And so I'm, I'm more for uh, sensible gun control laws, but I don't know enough about it to know what those would be other than I just don't think the answer is do nothing. I mean, I totally agree with that. So I don't know if that helps. Uh, you guys are looking really wonderful today. You look, most of you look interested. Uh, Bruce Chambers, good morning. Uh, glad to see you. And uh, you guys are awesome. All right, so third question. Uh, way to take it easy on me today, guys. Holy cow. Oh, good. Oh, good. The, the national anthem protests. So, <laughs> so we, go, we go from uh, gun control to take a knee. Okay. I am super frustrated about hashtag take a knee and the fact that many of my conservative friends seem to think that Colin Kaepernick's peaceful protest is disrespectful to our troops flag and national anthem. It's gone so far now that when I ask others about what Colin was dealing for, many and all caps here don't even know why. 
All they care about is how he protested, bearing the original issue at hand. Many of my friends are Christians who seem to see nationalism as more important than the injustice shown in recent events of white on black crimes. Given his reason to take a knee was suggested by an American soldier as a way to reflect how fallen men are honored in the field after sitting on the bench during the anthem making no noise, do you think Jesus would have taken a knee and approved of this version of protest? If you were a coach, would you take a knee with players that would join him in this protest? Holy cow, thanks, thank you. Thank you so much for asking such specific, non-controversial questions. Holy moly. All right, so go back one. First of all, I do agree that, uh, that Kaepernick began to, set, he began to sit on the bench um, and he did it in protest of uh, the fact that he could not sing an anthem where the reality of America had fallen so short of the ideals. He was protesting, protesting um, injustice um, and, uh, and particularly how uh, black men were treated differently, differently by law enforcement. He was uh, called out on that by a Navy SEAL um, and, uh, and began to kneel at the suggestion of this Navy SEAL. And, uh, and then that began to spread and certainly, you know, colonists without work because of this. Uh, next, next slide. So I agree that, that the original protest by making, by politicians making this about, um, you know, you're disrespecting the anthem, you're disrespecting the military, you're disrespecting the country. Uh, that wasn't at all what the original protest was about. So I think that's a cheap political culture war move in my personal opinion. But as kingdom people, all right, as kingdom people, do you think Jesus would have taken a knee and approved of this version of protest? I have no idea what Jesus would do in this situation. As kingdom people, however, if the anthem and the flag and the, um, uh, you know, and, and, and all of that becomes more important than kingdom citizenship, if it, if it begins to consume us and make us angry and divide us even further, then I suggest, I suggest we're, we're kind of, getting closer to that line where nationalism and Christianity blend together in really unhealthy ways. My particular, my particular view, if I were a coach, would I take a knee? Absolutely. Particularly when the threat was made that they should be fired, that they were called vulgar names for doing this. I, the, the two veterans I've spoken with have each said the flag they fought for was a flag that honored the, the people who peacefully protest the flag. And so, so, again, I mean, this isn't a Jesus view. I'm not saying this is even the right Christian view. You're just asking me if I were coached, absolutely I would, particularly after they're threatened with losing their jobs for peacefully protesting. I would absolutely, as a kingdom person, I, I think we have to be for freedom of expression and speech. If it's for Muslims, if it's for atheists, if it's for black protesters, if it's for white supremacists. And unfortunately, um, I think it's far too easy uh, to try to shield ourselves from the messages we don't like um, and just stay in our own echo chambers. And so for me as a kingdom person, I want to I be the kind of person that stands with freedom of expression, even and, and especially with the people uh, that I you know, would not agree with most of all. So if you're still there and you're not booing, that's my best shot on that one. And I'm so glad I get to just uh, turn this off and go to Facebook. Gary, uh, show me the room again, if you would. Oh, nice. All right, show me the room again, if you would. I just want to see everybody as I, as I sign off and bring Izzy up. 
I'm not seeing, I'm just seeing uh, the sweet slide. Oh, there we go. Holy cow. Man, can you, can you believe our freaking community is just ridiculous? I'm so proud of you guys. Thank you. Thank you for believing in Vox. Thank you for fighting for this. Thank you so much. It just had been so easy to give up on this dream we had together. And I cannot tell you how frustrated I've been that my sermons haven't been working and we've had all these audio issues, but doggone it, it's so fun today. So I want to pray for you if I can. Uh, I want to bring Izzy out. We're going to sing together. Uh, Ronnie's going to teach, and then we'll celebrate this together. All right? So let me pray for us. And, and I'm going to keep my eyes open. So you close your eyes. I'll know. I'll know if your eyes are open because I can see. All right? Izzy, close your eyes, too. You need this more than anybody. Classic. <laughs> oh, Lord Jesus, I am so excited to be my brothers and sisters in this way. I miss them terribly. And I am so grateful for your continued hand of favor and blessing this evening. I'm grateful for the woman coming late. I pray for her salvation today. And more than anything else, we pray that you would take me. Amen and amen. Thanks, guys. Good morning, brothers and sisters. How are you? Good. Mike, if you're watching, everyone's laughing at you because we couldn't hear half your prayer. It was cutting out. It sounded really funny. Uh, hey, welcome. I'm glad that, that you're here. I know you could have chosen lots of places to be on a Sunday morning, but you're here. Uh, I'm excited to see the, uh, the picnic. Who's excited to picnic after this, right? Hang out. It's going to be great. It's a great day. A little bit windy, but that's okay. Um, uh, if you're new, uh, maybe, I, you know, there's actually a, a poll that said that most churchgoers if you want to call yourself a churchgoer, go to church one time a month. That means that for some of you in this room, you have no idea who I am and what's going on here. So uh, my name is Ronnie Rowe. I am uh, just uh, blessed to be a part of this, this community. Uh, Mike is a friend of mine. Mike and I have had some, some great conversations and um, kind of see things very similarly in, in what church looks like and a community like this should be. And so he's invited me into this, and I feel uh, so grateful to come here. And when I, when I come on Sundays here, I just get this sense of like, yes, like, Yes, there's something happening here. Um, people are understanding who Jesus is and what it looks like to live his life out that way. And so uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you have me back here every single week, uh, or not every single week, but when I come back, you, you guys accept me and allow me to teach. And so thank you for that. Uh, it's, it's a great weekend for me because if you're a real LA fan, right, the real LA team, everybody knows that LA has a football team and they're the USC Trojans, right? It's not... Right, everyone knows that's who that is. And then the Dodgers, right? Last week, you prayed with me. God answered. See, Mike was right. God, when you pray, God hears. Uh, so it's good. I, I woke up this morning, and I felt like I, I just can't lose. I should probably play the lottery because uh, all my teams were in it. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit uh, about where we were at last week. So previously on Vox OC, we were in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And here we find uh, Jesus invited to a dinner celebration, sort of a banquet, a, a party, so to speak. Um, and, he, and he's with the lawyers and the Pharisees. This is the third dinner that he has in Luke's gospel. They've invited him, not because they want friendship with Jesus, but because they're trying to figure him out. They're trying to find an angle so that they can point out a flaw or a mistake. 
And so Jesus sets this table, essentially, and says, you're welcome. You're welcome to come. Um, and, and then as he talks with them, he uses the illustrations of where he's at to explain what the kingdom of God looks like. You got to understand that for thousands of years, these people, the lawyers and the Pharisees, uh, these were the people who had the in. You know, they had it figured out because of their, their social status, because of where they grew up, because of who they were. They were thought to be in God's favor. They were thought to be blessed, right? And so um, people were oppressed and marginalized because of this. They had misrepresented and misinterpreted God's law and who God was. And so imagine Jesus shows up on the scene and then begins to take their upside down world and flip it right side up. And so you can imagine the protest, the anger, the frustration from some of these people who now all of a sudden their precious um, stature is being called into question. And Jesus is doing it in a very loving way, but he's trying to express to them, no, this is who God is. This is what God looks like. And so we pick up the story again. So they're at this dinner table. They're hanging out. He sets a couple illustrations up to kind of give them this, this idea of what the kingdom looks like. And he says, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't get caught up in the minutia. Don't get caught up in the little things. You're going to miss the bigger picture that the kingdom of God is available now. So in Luke 14, verse 15 is where we pick up the story. There's a man who's sitting across from Jesus after he explains what the kingdom looks like. And this man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaims, what a blessing it will be to attend the banquet in the kingdom of God. A little bit tone deaf, which we'll get to in a little bit because he's missing the point here. Jesus replied with a story. A man prepared a feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guest, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I, and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. I just got a new Tesla. I want to go drive it. I, I can't come to your, 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 your banquet. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. We don't need to explain that one. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys, the town, and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And after the servant had done this, he reported, There's still room for more. So his master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the edges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. He now turns to a parable to explain the kind of people who will be in the kingdom of God. He was explaining what the kingdom of God was, and now he turns and uses a parable to explain to the people at the dinner table who will be in the kingdom of God. And so uh, I've titled this message in the treacherous words of the Verizon man, Can You Hear Me Now? Can you hear me now? You know he's with T-Mobile? Gosh, what a traitor. All right, let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for uh, this time. Thank you that we get to gather together around your word and get to gather around each other, which is so great because we get to encourage each other, to be with each other, to stand with one another, to bear each other's burdens, which is uh, the beauty of this kingdom that you've called us into. And so we pray uh, over the next few minutes that you'll speak to our hearts, to our minds, help shape us into the kind of people um, who are like you, who think like you, who act like you, who love like you. Uh, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, has this ever happened to you? Uh, maybe you're out with a friend, 
lunch, dinner, whatever. Maybe you're with your spouse or I don't know. You're just out, right? And you're at lunch or dinner and you're having a conversation and, and the person sitting across from you is, is uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. You're talking, you're telling a really important story. Uh-huh, gosh, yeah, mm-hmm. You know that, oh, well, that's, I can't imagine. And you're like, I'm trying to get your attention, right? There, there's a term for this. Have you heard this term? It's called fubbing, phone snubbing. Have you heard of this? I just read an article about it. It's called phone snubbing. So we're fubbing people, okay? When we're doing that, um, I'm the number one perpetrator and offender. My wife uh, cannot handle when we're, like she literally, when we sit down, will grab my phone and put it in her purse um, because I get so distracted so easily. Part of it is because I like ADD. Um, so I have to sit at restaurants purposely facing walls so that I can't see what's going on. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and so my wife, she gets frustrated when she's talking to me because I'll be on my phone. So my wife does the funniest thing. And, and some of you probably do this too. This is awesome. My, I'll, she'll be talking and then like she'll start going blah, 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 blah. And then she'll like realize that I'm not paying attention. And so she like does something. She'll go, so we just sold all your tools so that we can buy me a new purse. And I'm like, what? Like all of a sudden, like my attention is now fully engaged with my wife. She'll say things like that, right? And she, she gets my attention. Now, Here's the thing, uh, when Jesus tells a parable, he's doing the same thing to his hearers. He's trying to get their attention because they are not listening. And by telling a parable, by using a parable, he's capturing the hearers' hearts and minds, and he's eliciting a response from them. Remember, when he tells a parable, he's getting a response from the people who are in front of him. This is why he tells these parables. He's like, in other words, he's saying, can you hear me now? Can you hear what I'm saying to you now? Now we need to make a point about parables because it's important for those of you who are studious and you want to understand scripture and, and like Mike was saying that sometimes we just take things out of complete context. You have to understand some things about parables, okay? A lot of people misrepresent and understand parables and they use them in sort of weird ways. But a parable is like this, okay? This is a crude illustration. It's like a joke, right? When you tell a joke and people get it, that's what makes a joke funny, right? So if I was to tell a joke about lawyers, now, if you're a lawyer in here, I apologize. This is just bear with me for a second for the illustration. If I tell a joke about a lawyer, you could all laugh, haha, because we get instinctively the point of reference about lawyers, right? That they're money hungry, that they don't care about you. They just want, I know, it's, I, if you're a lawyer, I apologize. It's not true, stereotypical. But you get what I'm saying, right? When, when you tell a joke, you understand the points of reference. That's what makes it funny. And there's the punchline and you get it right? It catches you. Now, parables do the same thing because the first century hearers understood the points of reference. They got it. And when we read scripture, we have to understand that it was written to a specific people who had first century eyes and ears. They understand their culture. And so when we read, we don't have first century eyes and ears. So in other words, Jesus tells this parable, a way in which he can capture the hearts and minds of the listeners and we have to kind of dissect the joke to use the, the, the methodology. We have to sort of dis- dissect the joke so that we don't miss the punchline about what he is actually saying and what he's actually trying to convey. So are you ready? So the first thing is who? Who is he talking to? The lawyers and the Pharisees, right? He's been invited uh, into this dinner and he starts to talk about what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God as Jesus begins to reveal to them is immediately available to them. But the kingdom of God has certain qualities about it. It is laced with humility. 
To enter into the kingdom of God, it takes humility. People who would serve others before themselves. People who would create space for those who are not like them to engage in Jesus. People who would seek to go out of their way to love those who are marginalized, who are pushed aside, who are downtrodden, who are oppressed. This is what the kingdom of God looks like, and he says, it's here for you. And so you can imagine the statement that this gentleman makes as soon as Jesus finished tells the story about what the kingdom of God looks like, and he makes this exclamation, what a blessing it will be to attend the banquet and the kingdom of God. You, you sense the, I'm in. Thank God I'm in, and it's going to be great. This, the, like, the total tone deafness of this guy who claims to be in the kingdom of God, and he's missing it. This, this so-called insider is missing it. Because the reality is these people were not willing to engage the kingdom of God. They weren't willing to humble themselves. They weren't willing to go and serve their brother and sister and love beyond. They would find themselves in their own sort of religious country club, so to speak. And so the first point of reference to the hearers that Jesus uses in this parable is found in verse 16 and 17. This is the first reference. Remember, point of reference, just like a joke. So here's the first point of reference. Jesus replied with a story, a parable. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. And when the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. Now, your first century here, first century listener, you would have understood the story because this is called the double invitation. A double invitation was characteristic of a party in, in, the, in, ancient, in the ancient world. When you would throw a big party, uh, you would do these, these elaborate sort of invitations. And, and so that the culture first would, you'd have this first invitation that was sent out to everybody, right? And there was this flair, there was this pageantry when you would throw this magnificent ball. It's not like today when you just do like an evite, right? You just send an evite or you send a text you're like, hey, you coming? You're like, I'm in, right? Like that's just how we do it today, which is fine. But back then it's different. I would send out an invitation to all of you and you'd get the first letter and you would, you would reject the first invitation. Not that you weren't going to come. The expectation was that you were going to come. But what you were saying was, no, 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 compel me. Why should I come to your party? What will be at this party? Why is it so grand? Why should I be there? So there was this, this nuance, this cultural nuance, this going back and forth where the, the, the host would compel the guests to come. Again, the pageantry, the flair. And the first century hearers in this parable would have understood the story that Jesus is saying. So Jesus starts with the story and says, this guy had a banquet, sent out many invitations, and when the banquet was ready, he sent the servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet was ready. So the fact that nobody came to this party, Jesus is making a point about the excuses that these people had. It's almost lame, right? You, you hear this story and you go, yeah, who would not go after the second invitation? Why would you not show up to this party? That seems silly. And then they always say, humor is a good way to get your point across, right? And so you can almost sense the humor, the joke, so to speak, that Jesus is using because he gives these excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and I must ins inspect it. Please excuse me. So he goes on and people are like, ha, 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 the Pharisees are laughing. Oh, this is a good story. Tell us more. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married so I can't come. And so they're laughing. 
because of the excuses that people made for not coming to the bank, but what they soon begin to realize is that Jesus is turning the story on them. And now all of a sudden they're wearing egg on their face because they've missed the invitation, because they've refused, because they've made excuses about entering into the kingdom of God. Can you hear me now? Jesus is saying to these people, are you listening yet? You've missed it. I've sent out multiple invitations. You know, all through the gospel of Luke, Jesus interacts with these these, these Pharisees, these lawyers, and he continues to invite them into what the kingdom of God looks like, and yet they keep making excuses, holding on to their precious identity, holding on to their precious social status, their rightness, their own sense of righteousness in the kingdom. How many opportunities had they had to enter into the kingdom and they missed it because they've made excuses? And as we hear this story, we have to ask ourselves, did we miss it? Have we somehow missed the invitation into the kingdom of God today? You see, when Jesus came and talked about this kingdom, it wasn't some far-off kingdom that was soon to come. It was always there, but Jesus is saying, now with me, here, you have access. You want to see what God is like? Look no farther than me. See the way I love people. See the way I interact with those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed. See the way I heal on the Sabbath when you won't. See the way that I invite people to the table who are different than me when you might not. See how I choose to serve rather than to be served. See how I love my enemy. Jesus is constantly inviting and sending out the invitation, here is the kingdom of God in front of you. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Remember, these people were looking for signs. Show us a sign of when the kingdom of God will come. And then Jesus said, it's not going to be over there. It's not going to be over here. It's, it's actually right in front of you. It's available today. Here's the opportunity where you enter in with humility with love, with grace, with acceptance. The kingdom of God is here. Can you hear me now? Jesus is saying, can you hear me now today? The second point of reference in the story, the joke, so to speak, the parable that Jesus is giving is coming, and it's going to hit them super hard. It's like a punch in the face. So then it says this, uh, Go quickly into the streets and the alleys. He tells the servants. There's, he goes out and sends it, and he goes, there's more room. So he says, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now remember, culturally, these people were marginalized. They were pushed aside out of society. There was something wrong with them. God did not show favor on them because they were crippled, because they were poor, because something happened to them. They had sinned, either mother or father. Something was wrong with them. They were outside of God's kingdom. And now he's using this story to illustrate how a banquet is thrown. And the people who were supposedly in make excuses and don't come. So then he says, go out into the streets and alleys and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there's still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. 
Two words, two, two, two groups of words you need to, to pick up on in there. Streets and alleys, country lanes and hedges. Some of the different uh, contexts will say out into the outer streets or whatever, beyond the gate. The reference is, again, to the marginalized, the outsiders. When Jesus says, go out to the country lanes behind the hedges, the Pharisees, the lawyers, would have understood this point of reference. What he was saying is the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, those are the people who are coming to my celebration. Those are the people who were invited in to come and taste the kingdom of God. So you can imagine their look on their faces. So Jesus is telling this story because it's not lost on them. They get what he's, what he's going towards. Could you imagine hearing this? You've built your whole life, your whole system on being right with God because of where you're at. You think that you have it because you're in you get invited to all the right parties. You get to go into the temple. You get to do all these things. And now Jesus is going, you've missed the kingdom. You've missed it. The invitation is here. You've made excuses. You've said no. You've chosen not to. And he says, you, you think you're in, are not actually in. Jesus says that the invitation to the kingdom is often missed by those who would assume they're in and is most readily accepted by those who assume they've never had it. Because that's the beauty of this gospel of Jesus. That if you think, I could never get it. I could never be, Jesus would never choose me. You are precisely the person that the kingdom is available to now. If you think that you've somehow achieved it on your own merit, and your own circumstances, and you've done all the right things, Jesus says somehow you've missed it. You made an excuse for the kingdom that is now available and present and full of life and ready to be taken a hold of and invited into your life. It's this counterintuitive way of thinking about the kingdom, but Jesus says, can you hear me now? Can you understand what I'm here to do? To invite those who are in the streets, in the alleys, the poor, the crippled, the broken, the lost, you're welcome into this kingdom. And for those who think they've got it, he says, you need to listen. You need to listen. You're missing the invitation. And so Jesus stands in the center of our universe and he invites everyone to accept this invitation, an invitation to life now, an invitation into forgiveness an invitation to freedom, an invitation to grace, an invitation to love, an invitation to acceptance. Can you hear me now? Jesus says, it's for you. It's for you. As a pastor, one of the things I love is that I get to just sit with people who think they're so far from God I could never go to this church. I could never come in there. I could never be a part of this community. And I go, you're already in the kingdom. You don't even know it. God goes, no, this is for you. Enter in. Take this invitation because you're already accepted. You're already loved. You're already forgiven. Grace has already surrounded you and covered you and smothered you. Now just accept it. Show up to the banquet. Be here. Enter into the kingdom that is available to you now. What does that look like? 
As you follow Luke 14, Jesus then continues to go on to what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And what that looks like is allowing your will, which is your desires, your thoughts, the things that you can control in your life, to mesh with God's will, God's desires, God's heart, God's thoughts with your thoughts, to take the yoke upon you, Jesus says, which is light and not heavy. When you allow your world and his world to combine, you've entered into the kingdom. And again, it isn't based on your merit. You don't earn that. It's an invitation that was given, and he says, come, come and eat. Come and sit at the table. You're welcome. Come and see who I am and realize that I'm good and that I love you. This is the kingdom that a community like this gets to express outward as we leave the walls of this building. That in your table fellowships, which I love, is a chance for people to be invited in to the kingdom of God now. Because we love, because we serve, because we forgive, because we said grace. That is the kingdom available today. Can you hear me now, brothers and sisters? Can you hear me now? Let me pray for you. God, thank you that your kingdom is available, that it's open, that the invitation is to come and feast, to come and experience, to have a meal with you, to allow our worlds to combine. So God, we pray that you would give us the strength, the courage to say yes to that invitation. Pray that if we're confused about what the kingdom looks like, maybe we think we might be in and we've confused it. We pray that you would help soften our hearts to understand that more. I know I fall victim to that. Help me to understand that more. Help me to understand you more and what it looks like to love, to enter into with humility. And we pray that this community would continue to be the light and the beacon of hope in a dark, dark world for people to come and experience who you are. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, what we're going to do right now is I'm going to invite a couple to come out here, and they're going to share their story with you. Um, and then after they share, uh, we're going to take communion. Um, and some of you who have been with us, you know that we take communion together, and I'll explain a little bit more of that. Uh, but Bruce and Carol are going to share their story with you now. So take it away. Thank you. Wow. Um, hi, Vox. Um, this is my better half right here, Carol. Um, we've been together since I was 17. She was 14. Um, and we're really old now. <laughs> um, we've been through a lot um, that was not always blissful but we, what we wanted to share with you today was um, what God's been doing in our lives in the past couple weeks all started with um, one late night me being up way past my bedtime um, checking Facebook messages and seeing that this Las Vegas tragedy was unfolding um, I am a marriage family therapist, but formerly for 35 years, a trauma photographer for the Orange County Register. And I say that because as a breaking news photographer, um, I usually saw somebody die about once every week or so. And that was my job to cover that. So um, I have a lot of experience with trying to deal with sad things. And uh, 
that really kind of spurred me to want to do something more and become a therapist. Um, and that's where I'm at now. So I'm going to have Carol tell you kind of we're, what we're going to talk about is personal table and how that's kind of been a history in, in our lives and how that worked this past couple weeks. Hi. Um, just as way of introduction, I, I want to share a little bit of a story. A number of years ago, I was in a study, and someone asked the question, what is your favorite Bible story? What's your favorite Bible story? And their point was that it often reflects um, where your areas of giftedness are, where your passions are. And I shared that my favorite Bible story was um, when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding celebration. I got teased about that a little bit because I am a wine drinker, but that's really not why I like the story. Um, I like this story because it showed that Jesus really does honor our celebrations and our gatherings and our community. Um, that he took the time to make that event um, as wonderful of, as everyone wanted it to be. And um, I was also very blessed to grow up and with a mom and two grandmas and a neighborhood full of moms that really sh showed me the way, that modeled for me what community was in building. A few years ago, Bruce and I took our first big stab at this after 23 years of living in our neighborhood, and we decided to invite all our neighbors over just before Christmas, um, we walked around the neighborhood with flyers and we put one of our cute grandchildren on his shoulders so people wouldn't think we were trying to sell them something as we knocked on their doors. And we invited them all over to our house and we lit the fire pit in the backyard and roasted marshmallows and made s'mores and cooked hot dogs and just got to know our neighbors. And that was really, really fun. And a couple of our other neighbors who are also believers have kind of carried on that tradition over different holidays. But last week was different. This wasn't a celebration of some really good time. It was a personal table because of a trauma. And so it looked a little different. But I brought to it what I try to always bring to it, and that's um, a welcoming hug, a welcoming home, and I feed people. So he took the rest. As you can tell. Um, so Carol and I were discussing this shooting and how we were going to react to it. And, you know, and we've had many tragedies in the last year. Um, it's just been a ridiculous, natural tragedy um, time. And so that usually means, like, how much money are we going to give to what agency? And is this agency really going to use the money properly, et cetera? But at this time, this, that sounded like kind of like the hollowness that we were talking about earlier. Um, because... A uh, number of the people that were in Las Vegas, uh, the 22,000, several were friends of ours, um, and they were on Facebook talking briefly about their experiences. Um, so Carol suggested that she had, she had seen a therapist offering some free limited therapy, and um, I thought that was a really good idea, but I also didn't think that would be as effective unless it was group therapy for a lot of reasons but we could meet the need pretty fast with group therapy. So I put out some public notices on Facebook that I was gonna do this. I forgot to ask permission from my agency that I work for, but uh, beg for forgiveness later. Um, so coincidentally, my schedule opened up the first night because one of my clients actually canceled because she was taking her daughter to therapy for the Las Vegas shooting. So I uh, said, um, come and be with us. So the first night I saw four people, a couple 
who was literally still shaking on a Tuesday night right after Sunday, um, really hadn't wrapped their head around this, had tried to go to work that day. We're not doing well. We're not doing well socially, not doing well emotionally. Um, and the other couple was an older couple that um, their daughter had been there and they hadn't seen her yet and they wanted to find out how to care for her when she got home, which I thought was really lovely. Um, and when we were done, one of the, the, the wife of the couple that had been there and seen people shot dead in front of them, and um, they all, believe me, all these survivors have incredible survivor's guilt that you can't just talk them out of. Um, she said that maybe we ought to start a club, which I thought was an interesting word. It's a club that nobody wants to belong to, but they are members of it. So the following night, I had 20 people in my office. I don't have a big office. Um, I kind of panicked. No, I didn't panic, but I, I did something I usually don't do, which was ask for help. So I asked some of my uh, fellow former interns at the Center for Individual and Family Therapy, where I work, if they would mind, one of them would come and help me process. And we got an extra room. We brought chairs. Carol made uh, delicious scones. Um, and um, we split that group into two. And we processed with that group. And, and I can tell you the dynamic is that when you're a survivor or something like that, and you might take this with you if you know people, that uh, it's really hard to discuss this issue with strangers or people who weren't there, even your best friends, your, your most close, close people that weren't there. Because a lot of energy goes into getting past all your explanations into the heart of it. So this has really been helpful. So um, then I saw three women in my office and then on, for the same thing on Friday, my agency started to, uh, wanted to do something about this. So we had a full staff meeting that's like 50 therapists. Um, and what was the response gonna be? So by the second week, we had six or seven therapists doing group therapies in four different offices, all volunteer, all free. Um, and we just, I, I thought about that club comment. Um, and I decided that we would invite anybody that was a survivor of Las Vegas to our house. And um, I wondered if that would just go viral and I'd end up having the ultimate rave at my house. But um, fortunately, and we cook food for a rave, believe me. We had Carol, Carol cooked all this chili and, and we had hot dogs to back that up and we had all the drinks. And it turned out 10 people showed up. And it was a perfect number, actually because they did want to process again. So we sat around in my backyard with the fountain going in the background, kind of calming, and talked about what they were going through. Um, I've done the uh, group since then, and I intend to do it again this week, and my agency is trying to figure out what we're gonna do long-term here. And we have some ideas, but um, just on that note, if you know somebody that's gone through a severe trauma like that, do please urge them to go to therapy because it really, um, these people are looking at PTSD. They already have it, believe it or not, but we don't give that title to them until they've had it for three months or so. So that, if, that will fade with time if they're processing, they're, they're living a good life, and, and it, won't, it won't fade for all of them. If they've had trauma in their life in the past, it may just compound it. So this is something you really need. 
So my point um, that I really want to make is that in the past, I'm just going to read this. In the past several years, I've come to believe that God doesn't care about how big your numbers are, how many converts you have, but rather are you doing your best to use the gifts he's given to you. I've turned down leadership positions in large churches, groups, to concentrate on smaller life groups, and those groups have become members of my family. A few weeks ago, we had a new DeVox lunch in our house, and a member of our community asked the leadership what they needed most at Vox. David, lift, David Robles listed a few key areas where we could use some volunteers like childcare, but he finished by saying, what we really need are activists. He pointed that out that you don't need to be a church leader. You don't have to have a church leader tell you what you need to do for Christ. If Jesus says, go do this or that, just grab some like-minded friends and go do it. Many of us in that meeting paused to consider how we'd been trained or conditioned in the evangelical church to follow the directions of leaders, waiting for them to give approval to do the things that Jesus is urging us to do in the very moment that we're thinking of it. I don't believe you need, to do, you need that approval to do the work of Christ. And just, just to close, I think, um, you know, God does honor our gatherings, our celebrations, our community. And I think generationally that's kind of something we've set aside, maybe because of how mobile we all are. Um, but it's so worth the effort to just to reach out that personal table to let people share, to celebrate with them, or to cry with them. So I just want to encourage you to keep working toward that. Thanks. Thank you guys. So we're going to um, take communion. Um, Izzy and the band are going to play and sing some songs for us. Communion is a chance and an opportunity for us to enter into the kingdom. Um, I love that this invitation is to those who think that they probably shouldn't. If you think, man, I can't take communion, I'm not worthy, I didn't have a good week, this is, this is for you. This is exactly why you need to come and take. And so um, we have communion tables that are the, there in the back. There's gluten-free on that side. Uh, we also have um, our prayer shawls and the prayer walls there, and I think there'll be some leaders up there who would love to pray with you if you need prayer. Um, this is your time to now respond. Remember, the parables were given to elicit a response from the hearers. And so your response now is to enter into the kingdom of God. So this is your time. Ah, well, it's been a great morning. It's going to get even better this afternoon because we're going to party. We're going to have a picnic. Uh, the weather's great. It's a little warm, but it's going to be awesome. So I want to see you out there, invite you out there. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, I'd love to meet you. Um, just shake your hand, hear your story, or whatever you want to share with me is great. Um, but before you go, just be blessed uh, this week as you go out, recognizing that the kingdom is available now, that it's here, that you have access to enter in. The invitation are, have been sent out, and all you have to do is respond. So uh, bless you this week. Blessings on you. Go in God's grace. We'll see you outside, okay? See you guys. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.